my, my bit of kindness to you. I was gonna, we were going to try to cover five attributes of God this morning as we look at this great question, what is God like? This morning, I, I just, we got into it this week, and I was like, we're, we're only going to be able to make it through three. So we're going to cover three, but they're all really, really biggie. So here's the first thing I want you to know. As we look at this question, what is God like? I need you to understand that according to Scripture, God is jealous. Okay? God is jealous. Uh, and and, and this, is a, this is a big deal, so we're going to jump right in with Scripture. Turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Uh, Exodus chapter 20 there, it's that second book of the Bible. Um, and guys, this is, this is really, well, it's, it's the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, and uh, we're going to start in, in about verse 4. And this is the very first time that Moses goes up on the mountain. So he goes up on the mountain, and he's going to meet with God, and God is going to give him these commandments, this new covenant by which his people are to live. And I want you to notice what God says here in verse 4. He says, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Get this. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. But hear this. Um, of those who hate me, but hear me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so God says, listen, don't worship other gods. I'm jealous. Now, unfortunately, during this time, as God is handing down this new covenant to his man, Moses, uh, the Israelites are, are downstairs, right? And you know what they're doing while God is saying, don't worship any other gods. They've gone to Aaron and they said, Aaron, we're not okay with this God is spirit thing. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. God is spirit. God is invisible. And so the Israelites came to Aaron and said, listen, we want a God that we can see. Moses has been up there a, a long time. We want a God that we can see. Now, by the way, read very carefully Exodus because Moses goes up on the mountain and meets with God and the whole sky turns black. That's a God you can't see. You want a little golden shiny calf down there that you can touch. But there's a visible presentation of God before you as the mountain shakes and rumbles and Moses is meeting with it. But you want a God that you can see, right? And God says, don't do that. And, and they do. And you remember, so Moses comes down from the mountain. He is so upset. He takes these stones and he breaks them. But God, God, God is love. And God loves his people so much that he keeps pursuing them. And so he pursues them even more. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments again out of his goodness and out of his love. And so turn to Exodus chapter 34. Here's the second time that God gives these commandments to his children. Exodus chapter 34. And we're going to start in verse 12. Again, God just loving his kids and, and speaking, uh, speaking to Moses. He says this in verse 12. He says, be careful not to make a treaty with those that live in the land where you're going. Or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones. And cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other God. For the Lord, get this, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with those that live in the land. With, when, when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat at their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. So what do we do when we study texts like this? And, and, and the Bible says that God is jealous or God says, God says, my name is jealous. 
How do we, how do we interpret that rightly? And, and, and it's a big deal that we get this right because there's been many a skeptic that has, has used this thought as a defense for their skepticism, saying they can't believe in a God that would be jealous. Right. They think that jealousy somehow means littleness or insecurity. And how could we worship a God that's jealous? And here's the problem with that, of course, is they don't understand what true jealousy is. They, they don't understand what true jealousy is. So let, let me we're going to try to wrap our minds and our hearts around it this morning. But we've got to start here. Let's start with what the Ten Commandments are. OK, the Ten Commandments are not a list of rules to be followed. You say, wait a second. Yes, they are. No, they're not. The Ten Commandments aren't a list of rules. They're not a checklist. Okay, God is entering into a covenant relationship with his people, Israel. Now, a covenant's a big deal. It's a big promise. Okay, promising I will be your God. They're promising we will be your people. It's a covenant. This and I agree with John Piper. The best symbol here is is that this is uh, the Ten Commandments are wedding vows. They're wedding vows. You think about that with me through Scripture, right? What does the Bible say about the church? The church is the bride of Christ. The church is just made up of people. Therefore, we we would be the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. You follow me. You start walking through the Bible and you hear that we're to have fellowship with God. That word in Greek is koinonia. It speaks of an intimacy that only occurs or should only occur in a marriage covenant. Again, we've got that. You've got John chapter 14 when Jesus says, You trust in God, trust also in me and my Father's house or many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. I go there now to prepare a place for you. If I go prepare a place for you, surely I'll come back and take you to be with me where I am. Again, that was a Jewish wedding ceremony. The best way to understand the Ten Commandments is to understand them in light of marriage. Okay, these are wedding vows. And this is what God is saying. God is saying, don't cheat on me. Don't prostitute yourself out to other gods. Don't commit adultery on me. Okay, and and, and so he says, because I am a jealous God. Now, again, here's the deal. Maybe you don't understand. There's actually two types of jealousy. There's bad jealousy, the world's jealousy, and then there's good jealousy, godly jealousy. Jealousy, jealousy, in fact, that all husbands are supposed to have for their wives. So let's look at that. What do those look like this morning? Let's talk about the bad stuff first. Here's the stuff that all the skeptics hang their hat on. This is what they think we mean when we say God is jealous. Okay, first of all, they they think it means envy. And maybe you've heard this. Maybe you are one of these people. I've heard I've heard wives that will say something to their husband with a with a little elbow in the shoulders. You see that? Did you see how he brought her flowers? Did you see that? Did you see how he opened the door for her? Did you see that? Do you know that Sally's husband sits and talks with her for hours? Did you know that? Do you know that her husband actually listens to her and she doesn't have to repeat things five times? Will you please take out the trash? Right? Do you know that? So what is that? That, that, that woman in that very moment, she's actually envying something about another husband. And men, you know what? We do the same thing. Right. We do the same thing. Hey, honey, did you hear that Jennifer, Jennifer, she she takes care of kids. She keeps all the laundry up and she cooks at least two meals a day, not a week, honey, a day. Did you hear me? Right. Don't get me started on other things she does on a daily basis. All right. I heard that one, too, from her husband. Right. We get all. And what are we doing? We're envious now. We're envious. Hear me. 
God's not envious of anything. Do you know why? Because he owns it all. God owns everything. There's nothing that he has in this world to be envious of. That, so when we talk about the jealousy of God, we're not talking about envy. When we talk about the jealousy of God, we're also not talking about some kind of unrequited love, right? Um, if you've ever been single, you know what this is about. I call this the middle school years. Uh, you know, when you're in middle school and, and you really, boy, you get a little crush on a, on a girl. Uh, I'm talking for the guys. The ladies have the crush on the guy. And the ladies write with a really good handwriting. Do you like me? Check yes or no. And, and with ladies, it's never unrequited love. I mean, come on. Y'all are like, Hee. we're like, oh, yeah. The guys, we're always pursuing. You know, I remember I, I, used to have, I had a crush on a girl and bought her a little gift. And I wrote her a little poem. And all, nothing, right? Nothing. <laughs> You remember those years, little awkward phases of life? Some of you never experienced that. Oh, you're so great. Uh, it took others of us a little while to grow into our freckles, okay? Um, listen, so, uh, so, so this unrequited love thing, this, 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 thing, this is something that, that single people can struggle with, right? And, and uh, whether, no matter how you got single, that sometimes there's somebody that's single that are interested in somebody else. But that somebody else that they're interested in actually has feelings for somebody else. They become jealous over somebody they don't even have any right to be jealous over. Again, that's not God. Because God owns everything. <laughs> Alright? Third thing, and this is, this is really where a lot of people, when they hear about the jealousy of God, they think this third thing. They think that God's somehow paranoid. They, 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 they think that God somehow is little. And, and, and you... You hear the horror stories. There's a husband that won't allow his wife to make eye contact with someone of the opposite sex. There's a husband that constantly checks his wife texts and, and emails that, that knows all her passwords. There's a husband that when the wife leaves the house, uh, tracks her on GPS. There's a husband that if, if, if the wife smiles at somebody in the opposite sex in a, in a grocery store, that's a big, that's a big throwdown, right? And what's going on? They're, they're absolutely paranoid. They want to control them completely. This is the, I, I was thinking about this this week and it reminded me that, that creepy, creepy movie back in the day with Julia Roberts, uh, Sleeping with the Enemy. Right? Do you remember that one? And I, and I said this in the early service. That may be rated R. I don't know what it is. I, I watched it a long time ago, okay? Uh, sleeping with the enemy. And, and all I remember is her husband is so... And I... Hear me. I, I wish well for people for the most part. Very rare is it in the middle of a movie that I'm actually shouting, Somebody shoot him! Right? You're like, just kill him! He doesn't deserve to breathe. Like, kill him! I mean, it's very rare that I ever reach that point. But that dude was creepy. What, what was behind it? It was this jealousy. And hear me, unfortunately, our world, when they hear God say, I'm a jealous God, the world thinks that that's what God is talking about. But friends, that's not biblical jealousy. That's not the jealousy of God. So what is the jealousy of God? The jealousy of God is actually good jealousy. And I want to talk to you about what that looks like. Here's what the jealousy of God looks like. And, and, and I'm going to, again, talk about it in a marriage relationship, what that should look like with a husband and a wife, okay? Um, num number one, it's, it's involved and it's protective, okay? I, this is a husband that wants to know all the details of, of his, his wife's life, right? He wants to know, hey, honey, how was your day? How were the kids at school? How, how did the other teacher, that problem that you were having last week, did that get worked out? Right? How, how, was everything okay? Are you having problems with the car? Is there, he's involved. 
He's involved. He's, he's right there. Okay, why is he right there? Because he views his wife as, as one of the most precious gifts that God has ever given him. And he is going to do everything in his power to stand between her and any ounce of harm. Right? This isn't a creepy protection. This is a biblical, I, I, I'm the husband. This is what God has called me to be. I will stand between anything that this world throws at my wife. I will take every arrow on her behalf. You following me? It's biblical. It's beautiful. Okay? Number two, it's proactive. It's proactive. This is what this jealousy looks like, right? This is a husband that loves his wife so much that he never wants her heart to have to stray. He never wants for a moment for her to have to think about somebody. You don't have to worry about so-and-so providing flowers for, 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 her, uh, for his wife because I'm bringing you flowers and I'm writing you cards and I'm dating you and I'm doing little things around the house and I'm listening to you and I am doing these things because when, when I asked you to marry me, that wasn't a one-time thing, but rather I want wanted to step into a covenant relationship with you in which you would always love me because I will always love you. It's proactive. It's not waiting. Okay? That's the love of God. God is proactive in His pursuit of us. We'll talk about that in a second. Finally, it, it desires soul intimacy. What do you mean? I'm talking about a husband who wants or a wife who wants their spouse to be their best friend. Right? Okay, when my wife is hurting, and I know there are some things that she's got to talk to Savannah about. I get it, all right? I, I feel that, but you know what? I long for her to talk to me first, and then me go, I don't need to move. It's come to me first. It's the husband's role, okay? Godly jealousy, it seeks intimacy. I want to be your best friend. I want to have an intimacy with you like none other. I don't ever want anybody else to be able to come in between what we have. Are you following me? That's what we're talking about. That's good jealousy. That's, that's good jealousy, okay? Now, I, let, let's just imagine this with me for a second. Now, imagine there's a husband and a wife, and a wife comes to her husband. I want you to think, because we've got to walk this through. So imagine a wife comes to her husband and actually says to her husband, listen, in tears, she comes weeping, she's in tears, and she confesses to, to her husband, honey, I've been having thoughts about somebody else. I haven't done anything, but I'm having thoughts. And she says to him in tears, she's weeping, I just feel so unloved. I feel like you don't care about me. I feel unattended for, I, 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 I feel under, underappreciated, uncared, undervalued, right? She's pouring out her guts to her husband. Imagine how emotional and tough this is. Now I want you to imagine a husband that sits there and he hears it all and he's completely unmoved and completely unchanged. How do you think she would feel? She would feel like everything she had poured out to him was completely verified, that she was of little value to him, that she was uh, unappreciated, she's of, of little, that, that would kill herself worth, her, her sense of value. And I want you to see this because the opposite is true of God. Many people feel uncomfortable with the thought of God being jealous. All right. But I, I want you to, I want you to see this, but what they fail to realize is this. And I want you to write this down. Okay. God's jealousy proves our value to him. That's what God's jealousy proves. God is jealous of you. 
God's jealous of you. It proves that you are valuable to him. It proves that he loves you. It proves that, that he cares about you. It proves the depths of, of his love. And, and I want you to think about this contextually, okay? I want you to think of, about the story of the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer. Um, and, and, and you remember that great story that Hosea was a prophet and his wife was not just an adulteress, but she actually left him, not for another man, but to go into prostitution. She became a prostitute. And, and, and God speaks to Hosea because Hosea is God's man. And God says, Hosea, you are going to do something as a representation of what I am going to do. Because what Gomer has done to you, my people have done to me. And you are going to do to her what I will do to my people. And you are going to go to your wife and you are going to redeem her, Hosea. You are going to buy her out of prostitution. And you are going to bring her home and you are going to put a ring on her finger. And she is going to be your wife and you are going to restore her. And you will never look at her as a prostitute again, but you will completely make her clean and righteous and she will be your lovely bride and you will pursue her for the rest of your life, Hosea. And so he does. Now here's the context. Let's step into the story. You and I, in that story, are Israel. You and I are Gomer. This is love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of our prostitution, and that's what God calls it, and that's what we've done. In the midst of our prostitution, God comes to us with this great redeeming love, and He purchases us out of prostitution, and He brings us home as His bride, and He clothes us in righteousness, and He says, listen, not only are you righteous, but you are so righteous, it's as if you've never sinned before. You're beautiful to me. He doesn't call us the whore that we deserve to be called, but He looks at and calls us beautiful and he calls us radiant and he calls us lovely and he pursues us with this love. He does it. He does it because he's jealous. God's jealousy is proof of his love. If he didn't love us, he, he wouldn't care. He proactively pursues us and woos us Garners our affection and attention. I want you to write these last couple of things down. I'll move on. I should just preach on God's jealousy this morning. Ooh, doggies. Understand these things. This is what all this means. It means that we are important to God. Don't get me wrong. This isn't a man-centered gospel. This is a God-centered gospel. God says we're important to him. God says we're important to Him. Why? Because we are living, breathing, walking proof of the redeeming love of God. That's what we are. We're important to God because we bring God glory. And you say, well, how do I bring God glory? Well, the, the Bible says that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. Jesus said the rocks would cry out if we didn't, right? How do we proclaim God's glory? Because God took a bunch of prostitutes and made them clean. That's how we bring God glory. Because, because God took us in the midst of our sin and He purchased us and He bought us and He erased our past and He made us new and we are now the bride of Christ. Glory to God. Now here's the last thing I want you to think about when we talk about God's jealousy. I said it was proactive. I just want you to think about this with me. Just imagine for a moment this morning where we would be without him constantly wooing us back. Just think about that with me. Where would you be without God continually calling you back? 
constantly being proactive and wooing you and loving you back to himself, where would you be? Friends, I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that my God's name is jealous and that he is jealous for me. He is jealous for me. Hmm. Number two, I want you to understand this morning that God is wrathful towards sin. Not only is God jealous, but God is wrathful towards sin. Again, this is another one of those big ones that people take out of context. They don't understand. They have problems with. I want you to hear me clearly this morning. God hates sin. God intensely hates sin. In fact, Wayne Grudem, great theologian, would say, listen, uh, God's wrath burns hot against sin. It burned, his wrath burns hot. And I want you to understand this, this causes a lot of skeptics to, to think that God is a big meanie, that he's hateful, that he's some kind of big bully in the sky. But you, you've got you've to see it contextually. You've got to understand it. So let's read about the wrath of God in the New Testament. We're going to start in John chapter 3. If you want to turn there, uh, John chapter 3. We, I've got like four verses to share with you. John chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 30. This is John the Baptist is talking to his disciples. His disciples have come to him and they say, listen, John, we're not okay with this Jesus guy. Jesus has taken all of our followers and he's baptizing them. And what do we do with that? And I love what John the Baptist, this should be a life verse for some of us right here. Beginning in verse 30, he says, he must become greater and I must become less. There's a life verse for you right there. He must become greater. I must become less. And he goes on, he says, the one who comes from above is above all. And the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So if you don't believe in Jesus, you don't see life. Why? Because God's wrath remains on you. This is the wrath of God. It's a biblical concept. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, As for you, you were dead. And your transgressions and sins and what you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. It says all of us also used to live amongst them at one time gratifying the, the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest we were by nature, hear this, objects of God's wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich as mercy, made us alive in Christ, Ephesians 2 says, 1 through 5. All right? Before Christ, we were objects of God's wrath. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm just going to start in verse 18 here. Uh, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Paul is writing about, again, the wrath of God. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been uh, made so that men are without excuse. And one last one. Revelation chapter 19. 
Again, I, I, just, I want to give you a little bit of a survey in the New Testament of, of the wrath of God so you can understand what we're going to talk about here in a sec. Revelation chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 11. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, it says, I, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, that's just a sampling of what the New Testament says about God's wrath. But here's the question. Why wrath? Why wrath? Why, why, why is God wrathful towards sin? Why is that necessary? And it's a pretty straightforward answer, guys, because it's a matter of life and death, right? Romans 6, 23 says the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2, we just read, before we knew Christ, right? We were dead in our sins and transgressions. We were dead. Now, Jesus, God, is, is, is the opposite of sin, right? He is holy, he, he's holy. John 1 says that in him is life, right? We, we talked last week about the redeeming love of God. And the redeeming love of God does what? It, 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 it brings life. It brings life. So I want you to see this. Let's walk through this. I want you to see what this redeeming love of God is accomplishing in us and what it's going to accomplish in everything else, because the redeeming of love, love of, of, of God through Jesus is far-reaching. So first, let's look at what the redeeming love of God that we talked about last week is actually accomplishing in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Uh, it says this, it says, Therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The, the old has gone and, and the new has come. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's sins against them. And he committed to us this message of reconciliation. We therefore are Christ's ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that the redeeming love of God through Jesus Christ. Has, has accomplished in us new life and, and new, new purpose. Okay, that, that's, what, that's what happened in us. God loved us so much, right? We, we were prostitutes. We were in the middle of sin. And God came and he, he purchased us out of that sin. And that, that redeeming love has done something. It has made us completely new creation with absolute new purpose. That's what's just happened with us. Now see the bigger picture of what the redeeming love of God is doing, okay? Turn with me to Revelation 21. Because it's, it's so much more than just making us new. The redeeming love of Jesus is, is actually going to make all things new. Watch this Revelation chapter 21 starting in, in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had, had passed away. 
There's no longer any sea. I, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully and dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. I want you to see this. God's redeeming love through the person of Jesus Christ is so powerful that it indeed is making all things new. God's redeeming love through Christ is so powerful, it's making all things new to the point that soon and very soon, we pray, there will be no more death and there will be no more disease and there will be no more mourning and there will be no more crying and there will be no more pain. That soon and very soon, all that will pass away. But hear me, for that to happen, for that restoration that has begun in us, by the way, that's what the Bible says, that God has begun a good work in you and the work that he's begun in you, he'll bring about to completion. Follow me, Revelation 21. For the completion to happen, all sin has to be done away with. This is where God's wrath comes in. This is where the wrath of God comes in. For restoration to be complete, all sin must be annihilated. It's got to be done away with, okay? And that means some things. Again, you're going to fill in the blanks, okay? This is what that means about God's wrath. Number one, means that God's wrath is not a sign that he's hateful. If, if God's wrath is necessary for restoration, then God's wrath doesn't mean that he's hateful. It means the opposite, doesn't it? That God's wrath is necessary for this new life that we, we crave, this, this new beginning that we're longing for, this, this no more death, this no more crying, this no more hurt, this no more pain, this thing that we ache for, that we long for, that our spirit cries out for, for that to happen, sin's got to be annihilated. So God's not being mean, he's not being hateful. This is what God is doing, okay? Write this down. God's wrath instead is a sign that he loves. It's a sign of how much he loves, and get this, and how much he longs to set all things right. That's what his wrath is. It's a sign that he has begun a work and he will complete the work. Why? Because he hates sin so intensely that he is stamping it all out. So this is what that means. It means that we need to view God's wrath instead as this. It's a promise. God's wrath is a promise that one day all sin will cease to exist. And there will be no more death and no more pain and no more hurt. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That's going to happen because of God's wrath. All right. Last one. We'll be done. I promise I'm, I'm paying attention for you. I know. <clears throat> I want you to see that God is omnipotent. Now, we have touched on this one the last three weeks, so this might be the shortest point. Well, it is the shortest point, but omni means all in Latin. Potent means powerful, means God is all powerful. I like to say omnipotent, okay? Sue me. 
Thinks how the Latin people would have said it. Omnipotent. God is omnipotent. God is, God is all-powerful. We touched on this last week. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Sarah, right? Do you remember what God promised them? Anybody remember? God promised them a, a baby, right? Do you remember what Sarah did? <laughs> she laughed. And do you remember what God did when Sarah laughed? Yeah. God spoke. You know what God said? God, God told Abraham and Sarah something he's told several of his children over the course of the years. He said, Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a gentle reminder. Oh, you're laughing. Is anything too hard for me? God's told a lot of his children the same thing. I think that's maybe something we should be listening to if God repeats himself several times. <laughs> is anything too hard for the Lord? Listen, he said it to Jeremiah. He says, I'm the Lord. Is anything too hard for me? To Isaiah, he said, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is, is the everlasting God. Jesus said it in, in, in Matthew 19, 26. He was talking to his disciples. He says, with God, all things are possible. Is anything too hard for God? The answer, of course, is a resounding no. I think Paul got it. I think Paul understood it. And that's why, you know, in, in, in Ephesians 3, 20, he, he writes this. He's kind of praying. He says, now to him, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's what I want you to write in. Fill in the blanks for me, okay? God is all-powerful. And He has the freedom and the ability to do whatever He wills. That's who God is. And here's what that means for us, okay? It means that we are not praying to a God that has His hands tied. We're not praying to a God that has some uh, big long list of red tape that he has to go through to get approval. We, we are praying to the King of Kings, the almighty, all-powerful the creator that can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. That's the God that we pray to. An all-powerful God. That's who God is. That's who God is. So I, I encourage you. Learn from the mistakes of the saints. Learn from Abraham and Sarah, learn from Jeremiah and Isaiah, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer, of course, is absolutely not. So what do we, what do, we do with those things? <laughs> the fact that God is jealous and that he's wrathful towards sin and that he's all powerful. So I'm going to give you some things and I'm going to sit down and shut up and let you move on. And uh, here they are. OK, number one. I challenge you to remember your rescue. We are Gomer. That's who we are. That's who we are. According to Scripture, we're Gomer. Friends, we are the ones that prostituted ourselves out. We're the ones that were caught up in it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here is the love of God. God is jealous for you. And God would not allow you to stay where you were. And so God stepped into the midst of where you were and purchased you and redeemed you out of that. That's how much he loved you. His redeeming love rescued you and it made you new and he erased all the past and he says you're beautiful and he gives you worth and the fact that he's done all that, that's where we get our worth from. So remember your rescue. Remember that you're Gomer. Remember that God is jealous for you. 
that not only did he redeem you, but he continues to this day to constantly woo you. He never wants you to go back. Remember that, okay? Number two, I challenge you to cling to the promise of redemption. When you think about God's wrath, think about it in this context. God is making all things new. This sin that you struggle with, this failure, this fault, God is making it new. He burns hot against it. One day, one day, it's all going to be brought to completion. Revelation 21. When you hear somebody talk bad about the wrath of God, would you just speak love into them and say, no, friend, I don't think you understand that the wrath of God is necessary so that we don't have this problem anymore. God is making everything new. Cling to that thought. Cling to that thought of redemption that one day this too shall pass. And finally, I'd encourage you with this. Ask the all-powerful to provide. Friends, we don't serve a God that is unable. We serve a God that is able. And what is he able to do? Immeasurably more than we could ever think or ask. That's the God that we serve. Don't be afraid to ask God. Ask God for the big stuff. He's a big God. Turn to him. Ask him. Rely on him. All right? That's all I've got for you this morning. I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. So we close our time here this morning.